Ben Connor, nice to see you guys. I'm a professor of practical theology at Western Theological Seminary, where I also created a graduate certificate in disability ministry and started the Center for Disability Ministry. Before I did that, I worked with adolescents with intellectual and developmental disabilities for seven years. And I was um, on the national board for Young Life Capernaum, which is familiar with Young Life Capernaum is the work with young people with disabilities. And I was on Young Life for 17 years in some capacity. Uh, I've taught youth ministry at Western Theological Seminary. I've done youth ministry. I have kids, <laughs> which is way harder than yes. youth ministry. Okay, I could write a book if I could do it anonymously. I'd have a lot of tips. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll see how that works. Uh, but that's that's who I am, and I'm I'm glad you're here. I was also the the uh, keynote speaker last year. It was um, virtual, so it really wasn't much fun for any of us. <laughs> I recorded in our chapel at Western and had somebody try to make it interesting by putting different images on the screen, and hopefully it worked good enough, but you guys made it through, obviously, so here you are. So wonderful to see you, and thanks for being here. Let me start with a word of prayer. Lord, guide us as we think about the many callings we have in our life, but particularly the most important call to follow you and to participate in your ongoing creative and redemptive work in the world. That colors every other vocation we have as parents, as siblings, as teachers, as mentors. Help us be guided by that. And guide our, uh, both the presentation and the discussion today uh, as, as you form us for the service you would have us do. We pray this. Power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, called now youth and vocation. So we're starting off with two words that we should probably define a little bit. What, what comes to mind if I say youth? Just what comes to mind? Teenagers. Teenagers. So teenager is a term developed the first place it appeared with popular mechanics. Teen, teenager. And, and it was uh, more a function of marketing. It was when young people became a target of marketing because now they had disposable income. And around that time, the 30s, the 40s and the 50s, around that time, marketers started to think, you know, if we put pressure here, parents are going to buy things and teens are going to buy things. And that's the point. Because of teenager, this concept, that's where youth culture became popular culture. More than you wanted to know, but there you go. <laughs> next word? What next thought? What comes to mind when you say youth? Energy. <laughs> energy is the one I heard first. Yes, energy. Often uh, seemingly boundless and without boundaries, right? <laughs> and that's in part related to a prefrontal cortex that's still developing that is two things. One, a center for passion and exploration, and two, uh, incapacity to, to think through some consequences. <laughs> Both those things working together at the same time make for excitement. And the other word was... Inexperienced? Inexperienced, which is true. 
And we're going to talk about where that comes from. Because when you read of history, you're, you, you start to see, and when he was 13 and graduated from Harvard, <laughs> you know, you're like, what? You know, why, why is there so much inexperience related to youth? And what is this notion of, of youth? When you start to explore these, the word that you come across is adolescent or adolescence. And so we'll look at that. The other word we have to dig into more deeply, and we will, is vocation. And when you think of vocation, what comes to mind? Calling. Calling, which is it's a form of the same kind of word. Yeah. Anything else? Job. Job. That's what usually comes to mind, particularly as we think about youth. You think about vocational training, some sort of training you do to get a job, and that marks you as an adult and get you some sort of independence, right? So we're going to explore both of these concepts a little bit and see what we come up with. And what I'm going to try to do is have us have a different group of questions that we encounter, engage when we when we engage youth about vocation. So first of all, what is adolescence? So that is the not the individual people, but the category. And for one, it's a social construct. Does that mean it's not real? No. It just means that it's created through certain environmental conditions. And how did this period of adolescence develop around here? We're so used to it, we don't question it. So I taught a youth ministry course, and in my youth ministry course, I had a a woman named Rode, who was from Ethiopia. And I started talking about adolescence, and she pushed back on some things, because in her country, it's experienced completely differently. In our country, it's related to, that's just a a, a grim image of a truant officer. But it has to do with mandatory schooling, which was connected to uh, financial sort of uh, national concerns around the economy. That uh, on on the one hand, uh, young people were working and being exploited. But from the standpoint of the Great Depression, young people and women were taking up jobs that men needed to have, according to this thinking. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that's what was, that's what was happening, right? And so in an effort to create this workspace for these men who they believed were going to be the pillars of society then or the most important elements in your economy, then child labor laws were developed. So there were two arms. There was the compassionate, but then there was also the practical we need places for people to work. So mandatory schooling developed hand-in-hand with that. And then the other arm of that was a juvenile justice system. What do you do with truants or what do you do with kids that push against this? That created a, a particular kind of space. So labor laws is the, other, is the other sort of thing I have up here. So that created a certain kind of space. For the first time... You have young people from different areas pulled together in one setting, largely outside of parental control and guidelines, able to do things that are designed just for them. And if they're not going to work, then you have to create other things for them that are to prepare them for future responsibilities. So they become responsible as leaders in clubs, and these clubs mimic clubs in society. They become president, vice president of class, which mimics governmental structures, they move according to bells and have a lunch hour, which fits the industrial system, right? You see, it's a sort of mentoring 
for what you're going to be. But you aren't anything yet. You're going to be something. And that's the challenge with adolescence, is that you aren't a child anymore, so you know you're not that. You aren't an adult until adolescence ends. Adolescence, this period, ends when you're integrated in society with a job and make some sort of contribution. So right now I'm in this holding period, and what's available to me as a job? I can flip burgers, I can work at Subway or Jimmy John's, I can be a lifeguard in the summers. There's just, and that, now, now again, go back 150 years and read about young people and what was going on. Well, it was different. One, you had an important contribution to society and family because if you didn't do your tasks, chopping wood, gathering water, then you didn't have water and you didn't have heat. So there was this, that young people are like, well, now go clean your room and do the dishes. It doesn't have the same kind of, you know, sort of life or death weight that not having heat in a house has or getting food to have dinner or prepared, you know. There weren't grocery stores. There weren't, you know, there wasn't a gas company, all these sorts of things. So as things change, as society changed, the, our understanding of adolescence and what a youth is and when you become an adult changed. And so we need to understand that, that there are consequences for how young people understand themselves and their value in society based on how things have changed and this really late entry so that now you have late adolescence and early adulthood, right? And now you got a 35-year-old who still hasn't figured out what they're going to be when they grow up. They're living with their parents. They have seven degrees, but they haven't had to do anything consequential in their life, it feels like. So along with adolescence, you have the adolescent individual, and this has been described by a number of people. This is G. Stanley Hall. Now until you had G. Stanley Hall in the 1900s, early 1900s, say adolescence, this is an adolescent, it didn't exist as a concept. Yes, there were young people who became adults, but it wasn't marked in the same way it is now. And, and so G. Stanley Hall said, adolescence is a time of storm and stress and raging hormones, and basically made adolescence a diag- diagnosable condition. <laughs> and so you have to go through all sorts of uh, you know, therapies and, and things to make it through adolescence, and the hope is that you'll make it out of it, not too damaged to be able to participate in society. And even in churches, you see this, like, uh, if they had to write down their mission statement for the youth ministry, it would be that they graduate as sober virgins who go to college, (laughs) which is not an adequate calling. We hope for it, sure. I mean, I'm not not saying that's not, it wouldn't be great if it happened, but I'm just saying that's not the goal, right? That's certainly not the goal. Uh, then Erickson comes around in, in the 50s and starts to talk about um, these, that, the, that the main thing in adolescence is that it's a moratorium on adult responsibility where you develop a sense of identity. So I started talking about this in my youth ministry class and Rhoda is here from Ethiopia. She's a woman from Ethiopia. And I say, alright, so Adolescence, you know, it's this time period between puberty and adulthood. So let's say between 
you know, 13, and whenever you enter into the work world, Dr. Yes, yes. Uh, in my country, there's so much poverty, you enter into the work world as soon as you're able to work at all. It's like, okay. Well, it's a little different there. All right. So then you have a moratorium on adult responsibility where you can develop a sense of identity. Try on different identities. You can wear parachute pants one week and an ACDC t-shirt the next week. It's okay. You know, now it's all on social media. When I tried these things out, nobody knew, you know. There was no record of it. Now everybody knows. There's a lot of pressure there. Uh, she said, yeah, hand goes up, uh, you know, how are we supposed to have a moratorium on adult responsibility when we're pledged to be married at 13? So, okay, well, it's a little different there. And then, you know, and then it keeps going. She says, well, you know, in my country, we're ravaged by AIDS and medical issues and you know, all of these things. Well, you realize that adolescence in this country is a white middle class sort of a thing. And even if you move it into different parts, even of Grand Rapids, you have people who are living in poverty who don't experience the kind of adolescence that most books and theories and concepts of adolescence are oriented towards. So that's the first thing we got to do is we got to realize that everybody's process of adolescence is different. Some haven't had great responsibility. Some have. Some haven't had anything consequential to give themselves to. Some have. And so we got to realize that, that everybody's an individual and that we've been formed as a country by an understanding of what youth and adolescents are, and we need to push back against that a little bit. Another thing that we've been deeply formed by, and this is going to fit to vocation, right? Because all these different factors factor into how you understand yourself and your calling in the world. The other thing is this thing called networked individualism. And so the image is Jesus with a young person, Say, young person says, Facebook? No, literally, I want you to follow me. So Twitter? And Jesus saying, so I'm going to start over again. Now let me tell, tell me where I lose you. you know? So social media, it's a reality. I think it's related to a mental health crisis among young people. I, I do. I don't, I'm not saying that's wholly bad, but I'm saying that there's things going on with the mental health of young people that's connected to always being judged and always judging themselves against a standard that's not possible for anyone to reach. Um, so we have to think about how we engage those sorts of things. But networked individualism is sort of a, a, a worldview that young people share that's connected to several factors that developed in my lifetime, probably in your lifetimes as well. There have always been social networks. From the time Ugg told where to find brontosaurus meat in a cave, right? there was a social network that went as far as Ugg could walk. And then when horses and carriages came, the social network expanded as far as that. And telephones, it extended as far as that. And now, with every advancement in technology, social networks can expand. So now, with the internet, which when I started, uh, when my father was a mathematician at, at William & Mary in Virginia, he'd bring home a stack of these cards, and these were related to a computer that was in a room that was this big, that did very little to store information, do some simple calculations. And when the internet started, he was so excited with this Commodore 64 and his tape recorder that recorded information somehow, and his modem where he could connect to this thing at William & Mary to do, like, 
the minim, some very minimal work. It, and, and as it developed, it became an information superhighway. That was what it was designed as. And, but something happened, Internet 2.0, where you could create content. And that, that created the possibility for social media and these kind of interactions and networks. And it moved young people from, I grew up uh, thinking that my town was the world, everywhere I could walk, everywhere I could go, I didn't have much understanding of what was going on anywhere else, <laughs> except for the evening news, which was on after dinner time and my parents watched it, right? That was it. You, you didn't really know what was going on. And now everything's connected. Everything, you can find out anything that you want. You can connect. You're not connected to a place anymore. You become the center point through which you connect to what you want to connect to. It's created some wonderful opportunities and some challenges, particularly with regard to mobile connectivity. Do you see a phone you once had up here? Does it bring back fond memories? I had, uh, I had the cool one to flip up and the whole full keyboard was there. And I still like that better than my iPhone. But my kids wouldn't talk to me if I had it. So. Um, mobile connectivity means it's always on, always on you. That you can always be connected. We got a computer in the house. It was in my dad's study. If you wanted to participate in life on the computer, you had to go there. If you wanted to dial into the world, you had to intersect, inter interrupt the phone lines while it, while it went in. You remember that. Now, you're, my kids, if we're sitting watching a, a movie together or if we're doing something, their phone's going, constant alerts on many platforms that's keeping them always connected to something. So that's the world, this networked individualism, not so much defined by space and, and, and geography and even family, but you become a curator of your own image, connecting to things that you find of value, influenced by these areas you go to. And you would think that because of that, now the whole wide world's open, you become a much more open and, and, and engaged person, but as we've seen from political realities, what happens is what's called digital balkanization. You, you get more and more of the kinds of things that interest you so that the possibility of connecting to other things become less and less. So that shapes young people. So all I'm trying to do is say this is the world that young people are growing up into, trying to figure out what their vocation is, and it's challenging. And on top of that, all these books about young people that come out present the adolescents in terms of disability. This prefrontal cortex, these raging hormones, and so the books that come out look like this. Yes, your teen is crazy. Girls on the edge, the primal teen. Why do they act that way? Treatment of the severely disturbed adolescent. It's, and, and, and there's a fear of adolescence because of this passion, because the structures of society don't know what to do with it. Just some thoughts on that. There's a tendency in psychiatry to see adolescence itself as a disorder. Cultural agents have imagined identity crises with their emotional upheaval as a kind of temporary insanity. And then, again, by this book, Chronic Youth, Mobilizing the rhetoric of disability and rehabilitation, experts in parenting, books and news media describe teenagers as disabled by their unfinished brains and configured coming of age. 
as a rehabilitative journey that would culminate in a stable adulthood and ensure national health. So, the way that young people are viewed, what can they do, what are they capable of, the systems in place that make you less likely to ask these kinds of questions about vocation, has put vocation into vocational training for a job that you're going to get at some point. You're not there yet, you will be, you're training for it. What you're doing now is in preparation, you're in a constant state of becoming. But there's been some pushback against that. And these images aren't making political statements. All they're doing is demonstrating that there have been movements, particularly along the lines of social justice sorts of issues that have been led by young people. And when these happen, it's often the case that legislators say to them, wait your turn. And that's this model that you're not ready, you don't have experience, your brain's not formed, you're acting irrationally, your passions are getting in the way of your logic, these sorts of things. But it's often the very passions that the leadership needs and that the church can't do without. Ken Dean's argument, now Ken Dean's known very much for moralistic therapeutic deism, if you've heard of that, that the idea that uh, the, the general religion of most young people is that God wants you to be good, that God's up there but not really involved in your life, and that the important thing about religion is that we're nice to each other. It's sort of a... It's, it's generic enough that any religion can fit it, and even Christianity has been colonized by this. That's what Kennedy's known for, but I think her most important book was Practicing Passion, where she said, because of the things that are going on developmentally in young people, they have great BS detectors, you know? And they can't stand hypocrisy, even while they're being hypocrites, right? And, and they want something to give themselves to, something that's worthy of their lives. And so they're always looking for that thing. And that's what the church needs. It just needs that reoriented by Christ. But you can't lock them in a room with a lopsided ping pong table and some discarded couches and think that you're going to get there at the church if you lock their passion away. So how do we get that passage? Well, passion, what we got to do is move beyond developmentalism. That is, thinking of young people in terms of developmental capacities that emerge, and that's going to be when they can have their vocation. All right, so that's, that's youth. That's one word. What do I got, like five minutes left? <laughs> <laughs> what does it get to? 1140? 11.45. 11.45, all right. So that's one word. We're just starting on the first word. Second word. Vocation. So he said what you thought of when you come to vocation. Calling was one word. And job was another. So we'll pull back the curtains on the page. <laughs> so here are two Greek words. I don't know if anybody knows Greek. Anybody know what these words are? Just for fun. Well, if you go see Jill, who's in the back at Western Theological Seminary, she could enroll you and you could take wonderful classes, because I know you want more to do. But the first one, akalutheo is a verb. And this verb is to follow. And that is one of the ways that vocation is expressed in Scripture. Jesus says, follow me. And to follow is a response to a calling. You're called by Jesus to follow. And this following is an expression of vocation. And this is the one that because you're in this room and teach at a Christian school, you're at this conference, we can assume everybody in here has responded to the calling to follow. 
So the following is a response to the call. Vocation or vocare is this call or this summons. And in this, nobody signs up or figures it out. We've all experienced some sort of external calling through other people or a pull in our hearts or response to Scripture where we've said, I'm going to follow Christ. And that is our primary vocation. Anything else we do is an expression of that vocation. Another way you could do is go to the noun version, methetes, and methetes is to be associated with a teacher. So if you're thinking about what a disciple is, then that's that word. You're someone who's following a teacher, methetes. So to learn by instruction, formally or informally, and that's an aspect of our discipleship, to follow this teacher and be trained in the ways of righteousness. Every, and so we'll talk about different ways to think about vocation, but this is the primary vocation that uh, all the students in your class are figuring out or in the process of figuring out and that you get the opportunity to guide them through by your example, by the way that you conduct yourselves and treat them respectfully and lovingly and don't allow a medical disability model of adolescence to, to guide the way that you interact with them. You take them seriously and value them. You're participating in a kind of vocational training by your guidance and leadership in that way. So vocation then, according to uh, Sherman, who's written this pretty significant book on vocation, he said it's more about how to relate Christian faith to the totality of one's life than it is about vocational guidance counseling. Not that that's not important, but the central thing is how to relate the Christian faith to every sphere of living I'm in. All the many callings I have. And vocation is a lens through which we see the obligations of our specific and varied social occasions as avenues of God's call. The next definition is the one that you'd say, if I'm going to write one of these two down, I'd write down this next one. Because this is the one you'll sometimes see at the bottom of people's emails as their signature or whatever. This is this one. Vocation is a Beekner quote. Vocation is a place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep now that's passion, isn't it? And that's what young people are looking for. That's what they're looking for. Where can I do this? How can I do this? And I can do this as an assistant manager at a hotel. Um, because that's not, you know, that is a responsibility that I have. And it puts me in many different relationships where I can love and care for people and serve people and help people understand what hospitality is and sort of thing. So it's not disconnected. They're all connected. But there's so much anxiety for young people about what I'm going to do when I grow up. What am I going to be? That is paralyzed. And so I have a set of different questions to ask. Uh, and I, they're not original with me. I've gathered them over time from different sources, so I have no idea how to cite it other than to say, I didn't do it. <laughs> you know. But the question we usually ask is, what are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to be when you grow up? Paralyzing feel. There's like a couple kids that know, right? And they're sure. And maybe one of those kids, it ends up being true. I was going to be an architect. I went to Virginia Tech, got into architecture school, went the first year, took a year off to work for an architect, and had a crisis of identity. I thought, this is the most boring thing I've ever done in my life. You know, I had other things along the way that helped shape my vocation. Like, for example, Dr. Ijez in the physics class 
when he said, I'll give you a D if you promise never to take another physics class again. <laughs> you know, that helped shape me towards something, right? Sometimes we're being, doors being closed are part of our vacation. But then in other areas, I was affirmed. Hey, you really, when you read, you seem to be able to organize this in categories that are really helpful for other people. I'm like, I do? I just do because I have no idea what's going on. No, but that's helpful for other people. Oh, it is? That could be a gift. Oh, okay. So to have people in your life that are pointing these things out. So, instead of saying, what are you going to do when you grow up? Ask questions like this. What breaks your heart about the world? And this gets some thinking about what's going on in the world and how do I engage and what are my gifts and abilities and how do I relate to this? What drives me? What are you doing when you feel most alive? That's legal. <laughs> what are you doing when you feel most connected to people? Because vocation isn't just about me and the thing I'm going to do. I mean, when you're called by God to follow, you're called with a community that follows. When you're called as a disciple, you're called as a community of disciples. You don't have it all figured out. You don't have everything you need what the other people have. So your vocation is communal. So how does it connect you to other people? And then what moments have made you feel proud about what you've been able to contribute to a group or project? Again, pushing it from just me, my job, my future, to how I connect with my community and society and the world. Tell me when you're ready for me though. And if anybody wants to, I can give you my email. I'll give you my email address right now, and if you want, I can send you slots. So my email address is Benjamin, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N, Benjamin, at Western Sim, W-E-S-T-E-R-N-S-E-M, as in seminary, dot E-D-U. Benjamin at westernsend.edu. And if you want these slides, I'll send them to you. And if you have any questions, feel free to send them. Alright, so here's our challenge. We have to move vocation, talking about vocation from the world of nouns, which is this big scary thing that I the job I have to get or whatever, from verbs vocating the thing I'm doing right now, to prepositions. Which, who remembers, you know, prepositions from Schoolhouse Rock? They're busy prepositions. The prepositions are what connect us to other things. So vocation as a noun is the one big thing. It's the job. And the challenge with this, at all ends of the age... Here's the problem with this. The job, the one thing. You retire. Now what are you? Right? That the time you have the most crises in vocation is adolescence and retirement. What am I going to be? What am I now? And the other problem with the down aspect is, what about people with profound intellectual and developmental disabilities? If you're defining vocation by job primarily, then there's some people who... Uh, and, and particularly individualistically, like the noun aspect is, singular, static... Uh, the job you get as an adult, largely individualistic, then you're missing out on a lot of the gifts that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities have and the ways they can shape communities to be more loving and caring and thoughtful, the perspectives that they have. So vocation as a noun 
is okay, but it's not enough. And it can be overwhelming to young people. And to us. Vocation as a verb, you can also think about it that way. So the first one was the the methetes, the disciple. Here's the on the following. That's the verb, right? The noun verb. So as a verb, then you're vocating. It's active. It's inactive. It's not static. It's dynamic. And this is better, but still doesn't necessarily connect you. I think the primary thing about vocation is how it connects us to ourselves, to God, to others, to the world. Something unique that you have that the world needs. And that's prepositions. So I think that vocation or calling is best understood in terms of relationships. So let's look at some prepositions. Called by God in multiple ways. So, how were you called by God? Maybe it was. You, for me, it was through other people. Other people loving me and caring for me and seeing these things. And then hearing about it at church and being in a Bible study. These are all part of that process. But we're called by God in multiple ways. And think about the many ways. We're called to be followers of Christ. We're called as we are. So, uh, for many young people, you know, I'll just I'll just give you a really uh, vulnerable sort of example. My daughter, who finished school social work and got in a horrible relationship, had a was working in Denver and just moved back home as a 23 year old. Feels like a failure because she had to quit her job because she had to get out of this relationship. I came home from work. She was sitting in the backyard uh, with our dog reading, and her pant leg was up, and I saw these marks on her leg. And I said, what were those? She said, that was self-harm. You know, because of these choices that she made and the circumstance she found herself in, she has questions about, do I have a vocation even? How am I supposed to care for other people when I can't even care for myself? How am I supposed to help other people make decisions when I make such bad decisions? And I had to remind her that you're called just as you are. And you're a wounded healer, to use Henry Nowen's terms. You're a wounded healer. And all of these wounds and hurts God uses to shape you and form you for a beautiful vocation. We have to continually tell this to young people who... Again, social media. I'm not saying it's the devil. Right? I'm not saying that. I'm not anti, completely anti-social media, but the pervasiveness and the way that it's impacting the way young people think about themselves and understand themselves, we have to push against that by speaking in love and acceptance and, and pointing out their gifts. We're called from people, places, and situations, and I told her that too. I said, look, you're, you, you were there, and... She hated leaving her job. She had these wonderful... She had a little notebook filled with notes and pictures from the kids she had been working with that obviously showed deep love they had for the impact. And I said, how can you think you couldn't minister? Look, look, just read. Read this. Isn't this beautiful? Um, But she had to be called from that place because she couldn't care for herself in that place.
called with and through each other. And I think this is one of the biggest things. You will be able to have an impact on young people and shaping them for vocation when you affirm their gifts and, and, and model for them. And uh, for me, it was, I was in a, I, I was a brand new Christian and I was having a Bible study weekly with the pastor of my church, which was organized by my mom, <laughs> because I was hard to deal with. It was sort of like, this is your last option. <laughs> and so I met with him, and he's a quadriplegic gentleman. He's passed away since he was in his bed, which is motorized and everything, and every once in a while I'd have to flip him to the side, or I'd have to give him a, 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 a cough drop, or I'd have to hold up the water with the straw for him. And it never occurred to me he was disabled, because he had all the things that I wanted in terms of peace and joy, understanding Scripture, knowing God, right? I wasn't asking him about his jump shot or how to lift more weights, you know? I was asking him about these things. And I was called through him to a greater love for Scripture. And I realized later for this ministry, this whole thing that shaped every book I've written, everything I've ever done, on disability ministry inclusion. So we're called through other people. We have to help, help young people see how these circumstances in their lives might be things that are shaping them and give them space to reflect on it a little more deeply. Called for service roles and work. I mean, this is right there in Ephesians, obviously very scriptural, um, but also... Uh, to some degree, counterintuitive to many people, my vocation, my security, my safety, my job, my house, my wife, my whatever, my husband, my whatever, right? And to think that your vocation really is about the impact that you have on other people. You're called to serve. You're called to use these gifts on behalf of other people. Called in suffering, in the midst of suffering, through suffering. Uh, I got to know, when I was on the National Capernaum Board, I got to know Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata, started Johnny and Friends. Um, interestingly, uh, she, she said, how'd you get into this? And I said, well, uh, I was pastored by a gentleman named Dick Woodward. Dick Woodward, I love Dick Woodward. And from then on, I was good friends with Johnny Erickson <laughs> which was nice. Um, just a, a sweet, sweet woman who, who has spent a lot of time thinking about suffering. Whereas I don't like to connect disability and suffering because usually the suffering is related to social uh, structures and how people treat people with disabilities and that's the cause of suffering. Well, for her, I mean, she had great loss. She, in a diving accident, had a spinal cord injury that meant now all the things she loved to do, she had to learn how to redo. She's really athletic. She still can paint and draw these incredible images and has this wonderful ministry that's going on. Um, but all of this has happened through suffering. and It hasn't meant that she didn't have a ministry, which she had imagined. It shaped the way that she has it in ways that are really meaningful and probably gave her much more impact than she ever would have had otherwise. So then... The whole idea of suffering isn't the thing that stops your vocation. Often, suffering shapes your vocation. And so, in a world where uh, young people face a little bit of resistance and quit, 
uh, you know, I'm just speaking from my own parenting experience. I don't think, I don't know if it's true of all kids, obviously, but, but uh, my sense is there's resistance. This is going to be hard. There's suffering. I quit. Um, to say that this called in and through suffering, that this shapes you and forms you for ministry. And then called to, uh, to attend to the callings around us. That So you have many, many callings. Uh, so calling instead of just being the one down, I think of the callings that I have. So I have two primary callings uh, to participate in Christ as a disciple, so to participate in the ongoing, creative, redemptive work of Jesus. And then the other one has to do with uh, creating spaces for people with disabilities to participate in theological education and ministry. And then, so from those, and then I'm also a husband, I'm also a father, and those are callings. And all these callings somewhat relate to each other, but they're primary callings and secondary callings. I'm looking forward to the fact when I'm at the empty nest part of my calling as a parent, right? <laughs> but they fly back, then fly out. But attending to the callings around us. So can you think? of other prepositions and what that might mean as just as a fun exercise. If you just went and got a list of prepositions thought, how does this make me think more relationally about calling instead of calling is the one big thing? You know, you could say I'm called against this or I'm called among and around these. I'm called concerning these, opposing this. Anyways, just some way to play with it. So I'll finish up with a couple of uh, bullet points to sort of summarize, and then any questions or discussion you might want to have, we can have. And when you're ready, you know, you can do it. So our vocations change over time as we grow, develop, form new relationships, move, have a wider range of experiences to help young people recognize these changes. So can a small child have a vocation? Of course, right? Is there's the, the wonder and uh, the, whatever's going on cognitively, developmentally, socio-culturally shape the way that the, young, that, that the really elementary school kid has a vocation. That might be really important to a congregation. might be really important to a family. And then adolescents can have a vocation as well. So it's not just about this is a time, a waiting period, but there are things that you can do, and the networked individualism that makes it hard to come down on your identity also gives you opportunities to express and explore these vocations. Vocation is exercised with capacities that one has, help young people know the gifts. So, uh, on the other hand, as we grow into our vocations, we can develop skills and competencies. So if you feel like you're being called to do this, you can continue on. So at some point, I felt like I was called to be a pastor. And so I went to seminary, and I developed some skills and competencies and was formed in a certain way to be a minister and realized that I just, I'm incidentally or accidentally pastoral. I'm terrible if I'm paid to do it. <laughs> and so, uh, and, but I was affirmed in some papers I wrote for school that, you know, you should pursue doctoral education in this stuff. And I thought, 
I failed off the seventh grade basketball team. I can't do that. And so other people spoke into my life and said, actually, you can. I had no confidence. So you can play these kind of roles in the lives of young people where their past doesn't determine who they are and who they're going to be and what their contribution is going to be. But yes, you're called as you are, but you can also develop skills and competencies to do these other things. Vocation is relational. I guess if I hadn't made any other point, I've made that point. If you remember nothing else, remember that and those alternative questions uh, beyond what are you going to be, these different sorts of questions. Um, everyone has vocations, plural, be part of the confirmation process for youth. And I'm sure you can think of people in your life who are important in your life, why you do what you do today, it was people speaking into your life, confirming things in you, pushing you in other directions. And this is the, some of the joy of what you guys get to do as teachers. Particularly in Christian school where everyone's not a Christian, obviously, we know that. But there is a general uh, commitment uh, in the curriculum and in the ethos of the school that we are sharing the same um, primary calling, which is to follow Christ, which will shape all of our other vocations. So, that's all I got for you. I could do more, but that's all I prepared for you. And any uh, anything that you would want to talk about a little bit more, or any questions you have about what I talked about here. question. How do you feel about like the surveys and things that try to help people look at certain careers? Do you have any positive or negative experience with those? Yeah, they, they put questions before young people that they're not putting before themselves. So that's helpful. I mean, there's some things you may have never thought about. And so the more experiences, the more engagement. And not only do you have to think about it, you have to think, could I see myself doing this? And Maybe I could. And so I, I'm fine with them. Any other thoughts, questions, critiques? Okay. I'm going to tell Dr. Ijaz that I gave a presentation in a science room. <laughs> I'm not going to tell him what it was on. But I think that'll... That would give me joy. I'll tell Dr. I'll tell him what it is. So. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. Nice to meet you. And I'll, I'll hang around if you have a question you didn't want to ask in front of everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. As you work at Western Theological Seminary, if you want to learn about some of the creative things that are going on there, that is Jill English in the back. Jill. And Jill has a table um, that so far most people are excited about for tickets and mints. <laughs> but, uh, but there are other things on the table. <laughs> <laughs> right.